for February 13th, 2012. It's the Overthinking It Podcast, episode 189, The Rut Not Taken. This episode of the Overthinking It Podcast is brought to you by How Hollywood Says I Love You, the latest astonishing video montage from Overthinking Its Own, Matthew Belinky. You can view the video and share it with your friends. All your friends. Really, you'd be doing us a huge favor. At www.overthinkingit.com. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, California, I'm Matt Rather, here with the panel to overthink music, the Grammy Awards, the sad uh, passing of Whitney Houston, and uh, all kinds of pop cultural vows. That's right, the vow, the mega movie, the movie that promises to be bigger than any other movie in history. You can rely on this movie. You can count on this movie, uh, no it, matter it, no matter what. It's practically, it's practically issued some sort of solemn oath that it will be bigger. <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> yes, the top-grossing movie in America is The Vow, which is a. Uh, uh, I always forget who Channing Tatum is. <laughs> I understand that there is a Channing Tatum, but I, I can never call his his. Um, his uh, his name to mind. I was reading Deadline.com today, and someone referred to the, the current crop of young actors as the Bland Brigade. Uh, you know, <laughs> let, let me guess. Is Sam Worthington a member of said Bland Brigade? He sort of is. He's a Bland action star. You know, um, yeah. And and to me, like Channing Tatum is. Uh, is definitely like the leader of the bland brigade. Well, but but he's the house that Step Up built. Like that's who Channing Tatum. <laughs> <laughs> I, really, I really I really thought he owed his success to uh, to GI Joe: The Rise of Cobra. No, 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 no. He cashed in his success for GI Joe: The Rise of Cobra. Yeah, that's, he's doubling down if ever it were. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know what I like though is like, like Channing Tatum. He's got one of those names that kind of sounds like they're also a sentence. You know, like Tom Hanks. <laughs> <laughs> what, yeah. what, were you, what, what were you doing? What were you doing this weekend? Uh, I was Channing Tatum. You know, just, uh, I oh I see. I was Channing Tatum. Tom I Hanks. What does he Hank? <laughs> what doesn't he Hank? <laughs> All right. So uh, in honor of this movie, which none of us saw, and I don't think we know a great deal about, <laughs> uh, it's about a married couple. Uh, we, we know that it's the number three opening weekend film about amnesia of yeah. all time, thanks to Box Office Mojo. <laughs> we think, it, which as, that, yeah. far, as far as we can remember, as far exactly. as we can recall, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, what is your favorite vow in pop culture? Panel the question: What is your favorite vow in pop culture? First in the alphabet and first in our hearts, it's. <laughs> I promise you, it is Peter Fenzel. Uh, well, thank you very much. And I will pull myself away from the tail end of Magic the Gathering Pro Tour Dark Ascension in Honolulu, Hawaii, which I believe just wrapped up with a result that I will have to double check because I have the sound off. But between uh, Brian the Dragon Master Kibler and the Brazilian sensation Paulo Vitor Damo de Rosa uh, playing a wolf run mirror. So anyway, I'll have to and, go back to that. These, are, and these are just the people who have <laughs> spent the most money on buying Magic cards so that they're dead. No, oh, no, no, no. There's like, there's like a definite... Uh, rapid drop off and like the marginal return you get for spending money like you have to have spent as much money as necessary to even compete and then on and then that is like the people like the people that you know in your town that will have spent the most money on uh, spent like the sort of maximum money on this that is necessary will be able to compete and this is the best of the best of the best of those people so like that set of people is probably in like the hundreds of thousands that will have spent like as much money as is necessary to compete on the top level the people who are at the top are the people who belong to like professional teams that like test and brainstorm and stuff and uh and so develop it's, it. it's like hockey it's a lot like hockey yes and <laughs> yeah. that like it seems like it's a, a really like a un, like unmeetable uh investment like it's just a uh-huh. horrendously high investment to actually learn how to skate but just in fact, to get started people, yeah yes lots of people know how to skate uh they're just not me um i can try <laughs> Anyway, stepping away from that and to list my this is my favorite vow from pop culture and I'm going to recite it for you <clears throat> no you submit, do you hear? You be strong. You survive. 
You stay alive. No matter what occurs, I will find you. No matter how long it takes, no matter how far, I will find you. Uh, and anybody, do you guys know where that's from? You guys remember where that uh, line is from? Refresh our memories, Pete. That is, uh, that is from The Last of the Mohicans. That is the scene from Behind the Waterfall oh. where Daniel Day-Lewis uh, is uh, telling uh, uh, Madeline Stowe, I believe is her name, that she needs to surrender to the, the troops that are pursuing them. They're the, uh, the, uh, I think it's, it's the Huron Indians, I think, or it might be in that case, scene uh, the French. It's some unholy alliance. And that he's going to escape. Uh, but she has to stay behind because if she comes with him, like he's likely to die from escaping. If she comes with him, she's likely to die because she's a valuable hostage. She'll stay alive if she surrenders, and then he can go and rescue her. And it's incredibly dramatic and, and terribly committal and just like Daniel Day-Lewis putting it all on the line. Uh, it's a wonderful scene, and uh, the music is spectacular. I, as, as far as pop culture vows go, it is definitely my favorite. And I'm a huge softie. I'm a huge sentimentalist, and, and, uh, and stuff like that really gets me, so – so there you go. Uh, thank you, Pete. Mark Lee. <laughs> All right, Pete, I'm going to take your sentimentalism and sort of flip it, flip it on its head and go to our favorite decidedly non-sentimental movie, Team America World Police. If you remember, <laughs> yes. uh, you know, the love interest centers around, you know, Gary trying to woo Lisa, who lost her fiancé on, you know, on the field of battle. And she was very reluctant to enter another relationship with a fellow member of Team America uh, colon world police um and um you know in, in the you know the really you know, intense romantic scene lisa asks gary promise me you'll never die which gary replies you know i can't promise that lisa responds if you did that i would make love to you right now gary's totally appropriate reply i promise i'll never die <laughs> <laughs> torrid love making and <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love. I love it both. I love it both on its own merits and like as a successor to the previous thing, like as a <laughs> as a counterpoint to Daniel Day Lewis's exactly. utter sincerity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, isn't that the, just the nasty puppet sex scene that that happened? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Hey, hey, some people would call it nasty with their heteronormative, uh, <laughs> close-minded <laughs> view sets. That's not even so much about heteronormativity as it does about uh, non poop normativity. <laughs> non fecophilia. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, jeez. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I spoil. Geez. I spoil the DVD unrated version of Team America. <laughs> yeah, that's not. A, yeah, that's God. only. That's only on the uh, on the director's cut. Um, all right. This uh, just in. This just in. Brian the Dragon Master Kibler has won Magic the Gathering Pro Tour Dark Ascension. So now you guys can all. Uh, I know this already because it's Pete, Monday. Pete, just, all, yeah? Let's stick a pin in that because after after the question, I'd, I'd really like to. I'd like to return you, to that. Oh, you mean like as a memory tool, not like as a way of deflating it? Or yeah, like, like, we we all have like a professional Magic the Gathering voodoo doll that we. Uh, <laughs> like, oh, someone's gonna get pancreatic cancer next week. Yeah. Oh mine, wow! Mine, that's has, mine has a cat with boobs on it. Deep cut. <laughs> Deep cut. <laughs> Dave nice, Schechner, nice. your favorite vow in popular culture. Oh wow! I'm gonna have to go with uh, you know my my other two colleagues have uh, previously chosen scenes from movies, and I feel like uh, most songs, most love songs, either explicitly or implicitly, make some sort of undying vow. So, uh, considering the themes of the week, I'm gonna go with. Um, I will always love you. Oh, good one. Of, of course, as famously performed by Dolly Parton in The Last Little Whorehouse in Texas. And that is the only <laughs> recording ever made of that song. I'm sorry, the, the only way that you could ever vow to, to love someone eternally is if you are Dolly Parton and you are saying it to Burt Reynolds. I don't know. I thought, I thought Harvey Fierstein did a great cover of that. <laughs> what would that sound like, I wonder? And... Uh, <laughs> oh, good Lord. Good Lord. <laughs> I am hitting my head against the desk. <laughs> that's what that's what Bump. it sounds like if you can train a garbage disposal. That's all. <laughs> Sorry, right, we should save that for the TFT podcast where we actively try to alienate and confound uh, the listeners. Mine, uh, mine is related to to Marx, I guess thematically. It's from the uh, the Simpsons episode where the neighborhood's kids gang up on the bullies, and uh, you know Bart becomes a, a, a Patton esque general. Um, 
And uh, in his inspirational speech to the kids, he says, I can't promise you victory. I can't promise you good times. And they all, they all groan and turn away. And he frantically waves his arms and says, all right, all right. I promise you victory. I promise you good times. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the epic water balloon battle uh, begins. Um, so that, those are our favorite vows in popular culture. Eat your heart out, uh, Rachel McAdams and uh, Channing Tatum. I thought you vowed to be with Ryan Gosling forever, Rachel McAdams. <laughs> you know, broke, you've broken my heart, that's for sure. So, Pete, what is the name of this tournament, this Magic the Gathering tournament that, that uh, has recently concluded, I guess? I mean, this, this is an interesting – this is actually an interesting question. It's called uh, Pro Tour Dark Ascension, and that is the name of the latest set of cards that gets released. So they release a new set of cards every three or four months. So it's like three or four – it's like three new sets a year in a certain theme, and then a fourth set that's kind of like a regular straight down the middle set. It's kind of a generic fantasy. Uh, and this set this year, the theme is, uh, is gothic horror. Right, vampires, werewolves, all that other nonsense that's very popular these days. So the new set is called Dark Ascension because it's like the set where the monsters are rising up and, and killing all the people. Okay, it's the theme only, of arts. Can you only use the cards from your set? Uh, uh, or can no, you- no, no, no. Um, they, there's different formats, and the format for this one was mostly standard, which is all of the cards that have been published in the last two years. So it goes back to the, the beginning of the previous block, with the theme of which was a Magic the Gathering, like, proprietary uh, um, invented planet called Mirrodin, which is full of machines. It's like robots. Uh, and then they were invaded by, like a, like, a Borg kind of thing, and that was the theme of that year. So you can use themes from that block, you can use themes from the current block, and you can use themes from, like, whatever generic sets are current um, to kind Kind of tie it all together. They also have draft where you um, open up the packs and you have to pick the cards that you think are the best rather than spending all the money on, on an un, sort of unlimited budget. You get like a certain number of packs and you have to do the best that you can with them. I'll, I'll keep it simple for that perspective. But yeah, but there's, there's all sorts of different very specific formats. It's not just like uh, what are the, you know, the best stuff that you have. It's not, it's not that disorganized and it's not like just current stuff. They do have block constructed where you just the cards from the most recent set, but the most recent block, but that's not very, it's pretty rare. Um, yeah, and the reason that it's strange that it's called that is because they used to, and this is something that could actually interest everybody, um, they used to name these pro, those pro tours, and these are big tournaments that are run by the company as a part of their marketing budget. The, the big grand prize is like $40,000, something like that, and people, and there's like money that goes all the way down the list for people, and a lot of people basically spend a lot of their lives doing this stuff, mostly younger people, obviously, before the pressure to get a job and have a family becomes too great, although the person who won is 31 years old, uh, this most recent one, but they used to be named after the place where they took place. So this would have been Pro Tour Honolulu to stress the fact that the, the tours go to fancy, exciting places. And that was the way that it was branded and marketed. Oh, you can go to Kuala Lumpur. You, know, you can go to uh, you know, Prague. You can go to all these cool places and play, play uh, magic cards. Pyongyang? So, yeah, Pyongyang, of course. Nice. Uh, <laughs> so, exactly. so, so this year it's, it's in Detroit, is it? Well, no, it's, it's in Honolulu, but they've decided to stop naming them after the places and start naming them after the product, which kind of makes sense because now they're starting to repeat places, and it gets a little confusing which one you're talking about. But they used to try to have it in a new place every time. Well, they could, they could just call it like a Pro Tour Honolulu 2, the Pro Tour Honolulu inning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Annihilation. Nope. <laughs> Like uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, but it's interesting, and it's um, and I think it's it's because they the these are the these are like the three or four biggest tournaments in this thing for the year. Uh, there's many, 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 many other tournaments with with thousands and thousands of dollars in prize money. I don't recommend it as a professional endeavor. I, I like it somewhat, a little bit as a spectator sport. I don't watch it a ton, but I was watching the semifinals because uh, John Finkel, who made a big buzz by being involved in an OKCupid related scandal, ah uh, yes, which we talked about on the podcast. Uh, Forward. Yeah, we talked about the podcast. He was in the semifinals uh, and played some really one of the best matches I've ever seen. Um, so there you go. That's probably more information than you needed. But back to your regular yeah, schedule. That's, that's great. I, you see, I was wondering about the the sort of the semiotics of it because is it is it a pro tour or is it a dark ascension or does the pro tour somehow enable there to be a dark ascension? You Ooh, know? that's interesting. You know, I mean, uh, the that of is, it would be. It, yeah. makes it, it makes it sound like it is the players themselves who are dark and who are uh, ascendant. You know what I mean? <laughs> this is or, interesting. About, or, or, I just want to talk about what? Go ahead. Oh, no. I was going to say, uh, you know, is this the um, – do they have like, like – is there a milk chocolate version and a dark chocolate version? This is the you – know, this is Pro Tour Dark. Yeah, time. exactly, exactly. Um, the semiotics of it are because it used to be the location. It's kind of diachronic in the sense that people remember the syntax of Pro Tour Modifier. 
right? And even though in English normally you would put the thing that you're modifying at the end in word order, it would be like Dark Ascension Pro Tour, right? Like, but because it's uh, it used to put the location at the end as a as a modifier for the fact that it was a Pro Tour. Um, even though now it isn't as intuitive because of the words that they're using, uh, the people who are involved in it, um, because of they have the memory of how the words used to be used, would see the syntax in that way. Uh, of course, I know a lot of people think language is thoroughly synchronic, um, and I suppose those phrases still exist historically in like, historical documents and current discussions of those things. Um, I don't know uh, whether diachronism and synchronism is something that we want to get into too much detail on now because we have a lot to go so, through. So here's what I want to get into. Pete, describe what it's like to watch a Magic the Gathering tournament uh, really? on video. Yeah, I mean, okay. like, I have no idea. Is it like watching poker on TV? Yeah, right. With, the, with the, the camera in the hole. I mean, because certain cards, your, your opponent can't see all your cards, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the cards are not public information. The camera, they don't have pencil cams. They have the camera from the top. So it's sometimes hard to see what cards people have in their hands. Uh, the setup isn't quite as elaborate. They have two commentators on the ones that are run by the company. Um, they are people who work for the company, either as contractors or... Oh my uh, God, he played the cat boobs. Exactly. <laughs> so, like, there'll be a module, right, where you're watching it on the screen, and then on the right, there's like a box that they can put the card in that they're talking about, like an image of it, so you can read it and see what it does. And there's somebody whose job it is to sort of make sure that the card that's in the corner is interesting or useful for what's going on. They're providing live commentary. There's like cameras of the players' faces, of the table, right? And like, because it's top down, you sort of see the way the cards are organized, and you see everybody shuffling and all the creatures moving in and out. But the, the conventional, like, camera angle is like, you see from sort of the wrists of the players to the middle of the table from above. And then, then there's the sort of side element and they cut back and forth the commentary. So, I mean, it's interesting. I was thinking about this in terms of hockey, like does, cause I was thinking, cause hockey is such a bad TV. <laughs> like, is there a better camera angle to take hockey from? Because it's so hard to watch hockey. Cause it's hard to see the puck, right? It's hard to see the things moving around. I um, think for, for, for one game, like underneath the ice would be cool. But then after everyone had to get checked out for inner ear disorders, <laughs> fair enough fair enough although like that would be awesome right i mean is there something that you guys watch on tv or online that you wish was filmed from a different angle uh every episode of chuck really which no, angle? just just uh you, Emily I, in his I, eyes I, is that what you mean like, yeah just 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 put it on zach levi just let him, <laughs> just let him talk let him talk straight to me i mean uh, the girl the attractive woman that's the one adam baldwin uh, <laughs> Fair enough. Sorry. I got watching, I watched your psyche collapse in front of me right now. <laughs> it was the mention of cat boobs. It's, it's my trigger word. <laughs> nah. Fair, <laughs> Fair enough. Yes, sometimes they have anthropomorphic cats on the magic cards, and I've written about this in reference to Avatar and it being kind of anthropomorphic. Exactly. I mean, I think it's interesting that um, that they have like color commentary. I, I've never watched uh, like. You know, I've never watched Magic the Gathering. You probably watched, watched any. Have you watched any video game coverage or gaming coverage or anything like that? I, out of morbid curiosity, tried to watch, like not understanding a word of Korean, just just wanting to see sort of the cadence of the thing, um, some of the professional StarCraft that's shown in, in Korea. Oh, like the Brood War, like the old stuff. Yeah, the old the old school stuff. You know, the original StarCraft, which which basically up until the release of StarCraft two filled up like two complete channels of Korean television. It's still up there. It hasn't been supplanted entirely. Uh, but but if they. I find watch what have they have they not have, they, have like the pro circuits not moved on to uh, onto the second game are they still no rocking? no not no they haven't they can't uh, the the pro circuit the comp- the third party companies that run the pro circuits for Brood War have been pretty much deliberately excluded from the infrastructure around wow. Uh, too like Kespa, the Korean Electronic Sports Association. Uh, I mean, keep in mind, like these are people who you know basically ha- are claiming a certain amount of ownership over Brood War and the ability to broadcast it without paying Blizzard, the people who make Brood War, all that much money. Um, and that that's the issue, right? Is that in, when they release StarCraft Two, there's all sorts of controls and renegotiations. You can't run a land tournament; it has to be through their official servers. Like, um, it, there's a lot of restrictions. There's a lot of, of like it's been a lot of acrimony, and and there have been a lot of the professional players who've transferred over, but the leagues haven't some of the teams have um and the very 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 best players have not because there's still more money in playing starcraft one like like somebody <laughs> like jadong or flash you, right? you sure you sure it's not that they're just all like hipsters like yeah i played the original starcraft it's just more I think, authentic i think the three hundred thousand dollars a year base salary probably has something to do with it uh it's it's not <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. touche Fenzel. i don't know i don't know i mean you know there's always a rumor that like oh like jadong or flash is going to come over i mean we did get boxer but he's kind of on the 
on, you know, he's kind of not at the height of his powers anymore. And he's like the emperor's <laughs> greatest arc player ever. I, I, I like not your use us. of the first person on that. We got him. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We, I mean, I'm, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Um, oh, no, I was going to say, like, like, what I find interesting about, uh, in theory at least, like watching a, a, a Magic the Gathering tournament as opposed to say like poker which has you know a very avid television following is that you know poker like a lot of conventional sports you know there is no ostensible narrative that's that's being woven throughout the game itself and so color commentary has to uh, try and imbue it with sort of a meta narrative yeah. right like you know watching watching baseball uh, as far as i understand i'm not really much of a sports fan because i obey my own stereotype pretty uh, pretty religiously um, Which is the only yeah. thing you do religiously, by the way. Yeah, that's it. Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> that's pretty much it. Uh, I, I, well, I never take Zod's name in, in vain. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, so it's, uh, you know, it, enjoyment of it is partially about, like, watching these people's skill and partially about, like, trying to, uh, to lay some sort of narrative over it. Like, this is, yeah. you know, a combat between two opposing teams, two opposing forces, and blah, blah, blah. Whereas, like, Magic the Gathering, something like that, like, watching, you know, in theory, like, a D&D tournament, there's, like, an, an actual contextual narrative that is being directly woven into the thing. And I find that potentially very interesting. Yeah, I mean, the, the magic has signifiers. I mean, the all, more sports commentary in general is very postmodern, right? Because you're you're yeah. basically taking like a random number generator and trying to come up with a, a story that fits it. And of right. course, like people don't think of it that way, but that's kind of from the perspective of if you're not the person who's doing the training to prepare to play the sport, if you're the person on the outside and you don't necessarily have that immediate experience of, of playing it yourself, from your perspective, a lot of the things that happen are random because their causes are obscure to you and you're never going to really know, like, well, why? Now, I mean, you can try, but you're never going to really know. Like, I mean, every- even you know. even at even at best, it, it's just a biased random number generator. Yeah, right? exactly. Like, you know, exactly. The people's people's hit percentages are still, you know, they're skewed Gaussian distribution or they're skewed statistical distributions of one form or another. Right, right, right. right, like, right, right. No, nobody nobody hits the baseball exactly the same way every time right. he walks up into a given set of, of circumstances. Right. 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 Exactly. But it's the job of the well, the audience wants to narrativize everything that's happening and the commentator's job is to help the audience narrativize what's happening now with something like D, you'd have an actual kind of crafted narrative for the game that's happening right um where the a dungeon master or what have you is like telling a story with something like magic though you have the additional layer of the fact that the cards are signifiers right they have like a flavor so this yeah. one is a werewolf this one is a vampire like the way that the mechanics of the game work out there Which, are by the way like, is, is also the way that i play poker which might explain why yeah. I'm a terrible poker player. <laughs> it's entirely possible because you're like, yeah. you're, you're like, it's like, it's like, uh, from now on, everyone, the jack of spades is an ice gnome. <laughs> number six, use full house attack. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> number six, number six. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but it's funny because there's like, th- there's a whole bunch of different levels of narrative. There's, and maybe that's one of the reasons I like it, right? It's like there's the narrative that the car- that you can get from making a sort of collage of the interactions of the symbols and signifiers on the cards. There's the narrative of like the players and who they are and like the trumped up sort of hype narrative around them. There's the running commentary of the game, right? There's like the meta game, which is when people decide what decks to bring to the table because you get different advantages. There's a whole bunch of different layers on which the game is functioning as a story. Um, and that's one of the things that made... I mean, there were like 20,000 people watching the stream I was watching, which is not huge for... I mean, a League of Legends stream is going to have more than that. Um, uh, and, you know, like you're going to get a, a whole bunch of people. You get like, you know... It's, generally, we're talking about like somewhere between 20,000 and 100,000 people for a lot of these video game and game and, and paper gaming and all these other kinds of streams online. So it's not like a yeah. trivial group of people are getting attracted to watching this sort of stuff, but it is very fragmented. Um, but yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's strange, though, I guess, uh, I, it, this whole thing about the meta-narrative versus like the more direct narrative, because one would think, you know, if, if in general a human being's enjoyment of watching sports is directly tied to this meta-narrative than presenting him or her with the opportunity to watch an athletic-type competition, some sort of competition in which a more direct and elaborate narrative is directly woven in might be more appealing. And yet, as you said, you know, magic appeals to, you know, though, though a large number of people, it's, it's a vanishingly small percentage of, you know, the human sports-watching popula- uh, population, yeah. right? Well, I mean, this is why rivalries are important, right? Like, rivalries in sports, people like to watch the rivalries partially because there's more of a narrative to what is happening. Um, and so that's why people get more excited about like Yankees Red Sox than they do about like Red Sox, you know, Milwaukee Brewers interleague or whatever. <laughs> but do you mean do, do you do you think that this means that people prefer to have to, to write their own narrative about it? I don't think that's true at all. I, I think I mean whether you make it yourself or I don't think people are necessarily aware. They like to have other people do some of the work to make it easier. They, they want it to be simple yeah. and easy to do and digestible. But people aren't necessarily aware of how much of the narrative they're constructing themselves. 
right? Mm. Like they, and, and so people might, people might even protest when you say like, well, you know, the Yankees Red Sox rivalry is like a sort of constructed meta narrative that is there for the purpose of you more deeply enjoying what are still essentially random numbers. And in some definitions yeah. of what reality is, that is which, not which real. Is, you know, within the confines of Boston, something you can only say remotely while in the confines of a bomb protected bunker. Yeah. You're going to get punched yeah. out by like a Northeastern semiotics professor. In a oh bar. yeah. <laughs> He's <laughs> like, you shut, you shut your whore mouth. <laughs> Like, <laughs> funny, he's had a razor blade hidden on his person this entire time. Well, Sunapalu and razor blade, you know. Like. <laughs> so, guys, how, how does uh, turn the razor blade into a steam engine? <laughs> only by renaming it. That's how it works. But anyway, so and I'll uh, talk about constructing narrative for sporting events. Um, how does professional wrestling fit into this equation? Oh, wow. oh I love it. I love it so That's much. <laughs> The way that, that we always talked about it, was that you and I used to talk about this way, Dave? Or was it maybe with Blinky where it was like, we all- there's always one commentator who says what's happening and one commentator who says the opposite of what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> so, so one person will be like, and the person who's, who's saying the opposite of what's happening is much more excited, right? This is like J.R. Larry the King Lawler kind of thing where it's like, and The Undertaker gets him in a choke slam. It looks like Kurt Angle has him right where he wants him. He's going to release the reversal. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's a, a little-known fact that professional wrestling started off as a uh, as a long poem by Lewis Carroll. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, professional wrestling is all about all about this stuff. I mean, that's that's the point. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. To answer Mark's question, like, I think wrestling is more uh, it's more the opposite, right? This is a narrative in which people try and shoehorn sports into it. Well, it depends. It could work either way because it could also – I mean if you think about it, just getting the burly guys into the ring to wrestle each other, that's part of what people are watching. And then they also add significance to it themselves. And it's a fairly – it's fairly recently that wrestling has become so consol- – in the history of wrestling, it's become so consolidated that it really goes to like top down from like a sort of centralized institutional storyline, right? Like um, that like, okay, the WWE controls all the wrestling. They write all the stories. They brand all the players. And it like all filters down from there, and uh, and whereas before it would often be like people touring around, you're not sure what kind of story is going to catch on, and and people and and the, the characters emerge almost organically and improvisationally from matches, mm. uh, and like and like not right. that the matches aren't planned, but that like the matches are sort of an acrobatic feat. And the sort of lore right. that goes along with the matches. I think people underestimate um, a lot of people who don't watch a lot of wrestling underestimate um, the importance of the actual wrestling. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, like the actual wrestling, it's, it's so easy to talk about like the, the the hype and the promos and stuff. But especially if you go to like an actual wrestling match, there's m- much less of the talking, and it's much more of people just watching the men grapple each other and the women too, um, and all that other stuff. But yeah, I mean, we tried to get Balinky that job, remember, to yeah, write for the wrestling. I, I, I'm not sure we should go into yeah, it yeah. Much oh we shouldn't go into it too much detail. But well, well, funny, we, say- we shouldn't we shouldn't steal his thunder. I mean, he's got a oh, couple no. of great stories about that. Yeah, but I will suffice it to say that, like, some people on this podcast spent, like, the better part of a year and a half, I would say, like, sort of studying the, the like, semiotics and writing of professional wrestling and, like, the hopes of, of perhaps getting involved in it. Um, and it's definitely something that's complex as a writer to try to deconstruct and figure out. Because we were, we were living at the time all in Connecticut, and, uh, you know, WWE is based in Stanford, Connecticut. So uh, yeah. it, was, it was a hometown industry, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. It was nearby. And we had friends who were involved in it, too, like acquaintances. Um, but, uh, you know, I won't identify anybody by name, uh, you know, just out of courtesy, but yeah, but I mean, that's a good question, Mark. And I think that, I think we've addressed it. Um, <laughs> by the way, by the way, same for Connecticut, uh, you know, major industries there seem to be what hedge funds and WWE. Well, the thing is, the funny thing is that people, the thing that people seem to care about about wrestling is whether it's real or fake. But in terms of the story going on around wrestling, it's pretty much on the same level of reality as the story that's going on around like legitimate sports. They're both constructions that are based on these performative events, right? Like the only difference is that like the actual performative event has a different kind of um, you know plan behind it. But the ESPN isn't necessarily really sincere and like rooted in truth. You know, whereas like, you know, WWE is not. Pete, I thought you were going to compare yeah, the realism yeah. of WWE to that of the international finance. Uh, of of hedge funds, funds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, like the argument is whether it's real or fake, whereas within finance, everyone knows it's fake. Uh-huh. No, that's not, that's actually. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. I know we're, we're straying in dangerous territory here. Uh, so, so we segue. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do it. I'll always love wrestling. And I'll always love <laughs> And uh, yeah. is that the same we want to make hey, right now? Get off the stage. All right, fair enough. Uh, 
Um, uh, so Whitney Houston uh, yes. tragically, tragically passes away. Um, I'm not sure what there is to overthink uh, on this on this angle. You know, um, oh, I think there's a lot to overthink, but go for it. Well, I mean, just in the sense that like, <laughs> I don't know. I I don't know. I guess that there's like a, it. I just see it as like a terrible personal tragedy for her and her family. Though though I suppose it is for all of us because she was uh, because of the way that that music and songs like her recording of "I Will Always Love You" like kind of become so important for people. It's funny, like, um, you know, it's uh, musicians, they put it right in your ear. You know what I mean? Like, they're in your <laughs> 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 Matt, you, set, you settled out of court. You're not allowed to speak about that legally. <laughs> they take it uh, and they put it in your ear. Uh, <laughs> um, and that's, that's, it's a very intimate you, thing you, to have it put in your ear by a musician, I guess. <laughs> And of course, like, you know, cognitively, uh, you can detect in the brain, right, the, uh, the frequencies of sound that are being experienced through hearing, uh, whereas, um, and we talked about this in a previous podcast, we were talking about, like, digital versus analog media and the sensitivity of the cochlea and all that other stuff, that there is, like, sort of that music is a very intimate uh, cognitive function. Well, it's, but, but that's, that's, that's well beyond the, um, the pure, like, aesthetic absorption of, of different frequencies, right? I mean, it's, it, a lot of music processing is done in the language center of the brain as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so people, so for instance, uh, there have been, and actually there's great TED talk about this. I'll fish around and find the link, um, where a functional MRI guy, um, but that's his name. You know, professionally, he's a janitor. Uh, a functional, <laughs> a, a scientist who studies uh, using functional MRI uh, would put uh, musicians while they're improvising you know, into the machine and sort of watch how the brain works. And so certainly from a person who's actively creating music at that point, there's a very uh, linguistic, communicative type of, of aspect to, to the process that he's going about. Um, this is true for you know, the, the two groups that he talked about in his talk were jazz musicians. He had a jazz pianist and, uh, and freestyle rappers. Uh, and in fact, freestyle rappers, you know, obviously, I mean, it makes sort of sense that they're using these communicative ling- linguistic skills. Uh, but they, their brains also highlighted uh, in a lot of the areas that are typically associated with um, visual aesthetic appreciation. Because they're making a, a sort of, um, uh, you know, more still life, more, more visual way of, of viewing their speech than it is uh, sort of linguistic speech. So it's like a, a typical human's uh, appreciation for music is a very complex and, um, and, and difficult thing to really pick down neurologically. Uh, and I think this, this is also why it tends to be a very uh, sort of emotionally tied thing for people. You know? and, and, you know, Matt says, oh, you know, they really put it in your ear. I mean, people will talk about, you know, having our song. You know, this is, you know, my first ex-girlfriend and I, this was our song. Or I hear this song and it always reminds me of the place we used to go when I was a child. That, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, where it's clear that just beyond the actual physical um, harmonic frequencies that are being given to you, your brain has imbued it with, with something um, far greater so to talk about what you know our, our brains imbued to songs and sort of the emotional connection we have with Whitney Houston right let me just use one example uh, you know obviously you know her career you know has a lot of hits with it but uh, what I keep coming back to and I think what a lot of my friends of my age have kept coming back to is the greatest love of all Right. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple mm-hmm. things to talk about this. One is I think a lot of us have a memory of being in probably elementary school and hearing this song and sort of being like a, a school assembly, you know, like get all the kids sing a cute song to, together. Right. Because, you know, because the greatest love of all is happening to me. And I believe that children are our future. Right. I mean, come on. That's perfect for, you know, the, the shining optimism of yeah. elementary school yeah. uh, kids. Right. And now that sort of uh, that that image has been uh, that moment in time has been tainted or taken away from us. Right. The other thing you talk oh, about I mean, with the the greatest love of all is the tragic irony of the lyrics. Um, what they 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 won't take away my dignity, which uh, you know I call it they or she herself or Bobby Brown, but uh, unfortunately her dignity was much taken away from her by the end. Yeah, no, but people are still trying to take away her dignity. Like there's a there's a battle, there's like a war going on right now for like her legacy where like, you know, and I think a lot of it is is racially motivated. Well, well legacy or dignity. Like, though. like when I say dignity, I'm talking about like, you know, the descent from uh, diva pop goddess, just gold America's golden girl. And you look back at the clips of her singing the Star Spangled Banner, you know, national anthem in the Super Bowl 1991 during the Gulf War, and that was just like uh, unassailable, perfect moment. And then just down to the you know, crack is whack, 
Right. That's the well, thing about her dignity. It's just like, you know, she lost it, had it taken away, whatever. Well, I think also there's there's just, there's a historical there's the there's the historical person, right? There's like her own experience of her life and the dignity that she has afforded while she is living it. And then there is the dignity that is afforded her historical person, which is not just something that she lives for herself, but which has a role in our culture and like uh is is a symbol for a lot of people. So so people connecting people who connect powerfully with Whitney Houston's music, um Whitney Houston is a, is a is a person like Michael Jackson, I think, who for whom um, it's there's a there's a huge gap in perspective between people who see their narrative as kind of like a collapse and people who are so invested in the personage that they, they created at their height that like that personage as as a thing. Is, is, is indoors and is so important that like the the crack the crackitude wackitude that follows like does not diminish it like for the moment that it was glorious it it presented us with something that is still deeply meaningful to us and still matters right it's like i mean it's easy for us to look at whitney houston there's so many imitators to whitney houston um uh, I mean, let, let's step back for a second and say well what did whitney houston actually do Right, like what was her job? And she's a singer. She was a singer, and she was an interpreter of songs. She didn't write her songs. She didn't choose her material very much necessarily. Like she worked with a lot of producers and and writers, and she had mentors. And 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 but she was a singer, and she came from this sort of gospel tradition, and she went pop. And she has this very uh, specific kind of song interpretation that depends on a great deal of just virtuosity, of just physical ability and technique, uh, but but also just a gift, right? That allows her to create to hit this middle ground between gospel vocals and pop vocals, which became, like, the, one of the dominant forms of, of song, of song interpretation of, like, the 80s and 90s, right? And that's what she did. And, and this place in the cult, I mean, that's, that's for me. And she projected the image uh, publicly of this sort of, like, fun but not overly sexualized person who is really glorying in the enjoyment that she was having of the stuff that she was doing. And, and there's messages there. There's freedoms. There's stuff about racial politics, about, like, sort of actualization. Like, look at her. She's on top. Like, you know, a generation ago, she would have been relatively to the race music dial on the radio, and now she's a huge pop star, right? Like, she's the thing, right? Like, this is very symbolic for people. It's important. And for people to try to make sure that the thing that people remember about her is the fact that she got involved with drugs and collapse, like, that feeds another, that feeds, like, the Reagan-era Cadillac, you know, welfare queen narrative, mm-hmm. right? That feeds, like, the whole, like, well, you know, bootleg phrenology, like, we think that black people are incapable of sustaining success because they will always destroy themselves due to their inferior intelligence narrative. I mean, I mean, I mean like, some, to some people that may be true, but I feel like... Um, I think it's true to a lot of the, people. The, the, I, there are a huge two, number of jerks out there right now saying nasty things about Oh, no, no, no. That, that's definitely true. I mean, there are a huge number yeah. of jerks, but a lot of those jerks might not necessarily care about her race, just the fact that she was successful and huge. And, and and then can can fall from grace, right? I mean, I guess they they'll take pleasure in anybody falling from grace, but they'll yeah. take a lot more pleasure in somebody they see themselves opposed to falling from grace than one of their own. Um, well, sure, I I see that <laughs> argument. It's hard. It's it's hard not to. Uh, it's hard not to see that argument, Pete. But they also, I mean, it did get pretty vicious with Britney Spears there for a little while, right? It got, it got uh, huge with uh, with Anna Nicole Smith, right? I, I mean, then you could say maybe it's more important that they're women. I guess <laughs> you know. It just, also, that they're sort of come from a, a lower socioeconomic yeah, it's, status. It's women, uh-huh. the, yeah. It's it's lower class women or working. Well, class it's, women, it's slut shaming right? too. It's like sure. trying. It's like, it's also highly, hugely hypocritical. Um, where I, where it's like we really want the, to consume what this person is giving us because we crave that sexuality, and then as soon as they as soon as they're no longer this dominant person, we like tear them apart for giving us the thing that we asked for, as if it's this like horrible flaw in character, right? Which of course we're entirely not only complicit in, but like create ourselves. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. That's a good question. I guess one of the things to say about it is that it's it's the the well trodden ruts in our in our like. Um, social dialogue are the easiest way to bash somebody. Um, that might be that might be one of the factors. Is that it's it's easier. I mean, you know, somebody's already gone before you and spent millions and millions of dollars propagandizing about the inability of people like Whitney Houston to live successfully in life because by by because they derive a political advantage from making people believe that her race or her gender makes her incapable of being successful in the long term. Her, so like yeah, they have her sort of socioeconomic uh, class of origin. Where, yeah, like where she's from. I'm actually, I'm, I'm going to say that that it's actually her ascension and their failed ascension that makes them so antagonistic towards her, right? That it's like, I, the, I, yeah. Well, I mean, we we we're all we've all been fed since birth the story of the American dream, right? The, the idea that anyone through hard work and a little bit of luck, but mostly perseverance, uh, and the God given skills that you'll cultivate. 
can rise to become the greatest thing ever. Right? We, we could all be um, a, a Horatio Alger story if, if we just put our minds to it. And of right. course, that's just impossible. And so, you know, while we while we tend to beatify those people as they're you know rising up to the height of their success, uh, there's also that little part of us that kind of wants to see them fail because we're jealous of their successes. Right. And, right, and, right. and I think that there's a, there's a good degree of, of relishing a good degree of the relishing that happens when someone like Whitney Houston ends up you know falling into abuse and crack and whatnot. Yeah. You know, well, it, just, it serves it serves you right for, for sticking your head out. Well, did, you know, I guess, well, I, I guess that's a certain. I mean, I guess that depends on kind of the end of the kind of individual. That sounds like more a question of individual psychology, but it's it's I I, I think we can't we can't sort of deny Pete's claim that larger social social forces are also at play here. You know? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. But yeah. but beyond, I don't. I think part kind of. Part, Sorry, beyond the the kind of um, individual sort of like intra you know intra psychic uh, conflict about about success and you know one's own kind of grandiosity and dreams. Yeah, it might also just be possible. It's like I want to tear this person down. My impulse is to tear this person down. I don't critically analyze wh- how I go about doing this, right? Like I, I'm right. going to say whatever works, and if it resonates and if it works, great. But the problem is, then, of course, by doing this, I think people tend to maybe people what people are doing. Some of them is, is eschewing responsibility for like the the like, choosing the ways that turn out to work. Well, like right. their mechanism, yeah, yeah. Exa- exactly. Like the the things that emerge naturally, quote unquote, naturally yeah. are actually the things that are that are socially constructed, right? Like, the, yeah, um, sure. That yeah. is to say that there, there are a number of of predetermined ruts and they have to do with racism and sexism and, and you know, all the, all these things that we're talking about. Whereas we on overthinking it, like to take the rut not taken. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I talk you know, about her I, hair. Gonna, that I'm hair gonna, was ridiculous. I'm going to tear down Whitney Houston because she didn't have her wisdom teeth taken out. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, you know, Pete, you mentioned the hair. The hair is actually a huge issue in the African-American community. Oh yeah. Uh, so if the, I, I actually really recommend, I wish I remember the name, I'm clearly recommending it quite highly, but Chris Rock uh, put out a documentary it's about good hair, and it's a is fantastic movie. Yeah, it is. It is amazing. Like everyone should go out and uh, acquire it through legal means and watch it soon uh, because it's really it's just fascinating, um, and and really terrifying in its own way and just sort of sad, but uh, but really good. That is cool. So yeah, I've heard of this too that that she to a degree. I know I said that she's one of these people that's like Michael Jackson, but she's also unlike Michael Jackson in that she has generally there is a, there are, is a sort of group of opposition to her as not authentic enough, right? That she crossed that she sold out too much, uh, that she changed her image too much, that she kind of denied herself too much in her heritage, um, which is something that Michael Jackson isn't generally accused of doing from within the black community all that often. Um, but also musically that. Uh, you know, her sound was too pop and not yeah, black yeah, yeah. R and B or not pop R and B, like all that other stuff. That is interesting. I, I should watch Good Hair. That sounds. I mean, as somebody who is who, it's funny because when I was young, I was mocked for my hair like all the time. Like I have curly hair and Patrick Duffy level curly hair. Like you know, like oh man, if only I'd been an adult in the seventies. Uh, but then I would have been an adult in the seventies, and that would have been, been, been its own reward, I suppose. But. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I was mocked mercilessly for my hair, like every day through like all of elementary school and and all of and some of middle school too. Just like you know, people like, hollering at me like, "Look at your fro and cut it," you know, like all this other nonsense. Uh, and it was you know, it was, obviously it was hurtful, but I mean, I didn't I didn't you know consider it to be something that I needed to be protected from, right? Like it wasn't like a it wasn't like I needed an anti bullying workshop to get through it. Uh, it did <laughs> suck, but um, but the fact that even I had to deal with like that amount of crud, and I am like very much not in the wheelhouse of of people really dealing with, with like social I mean, shaming. You know, knowing when we were growing up, though, Pete, how many of your mockers were themselves sporting mullets? <laughs> uh, they, would have, they would have called them hockey cuts, most likely, <laughs> or, or, or red tails. Yeah. But at the end of the day, we didn't call them mullets. So that's kind of a derogatory term. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we just call them haircut X now, all right? Yeah, exactly. exactly. Mullet was my, my hair's slave name. <laughs> I just, I just, I do remember, I do remember thinking at one point whilst getting a haircut, like, like, like wondering why people would ever cut the bottom of the back of their hair off because it like makes any haircut awesomer to have like that little bit of tail in the back. <laughs> <laughs> like it just like, it had a quality that just made any haircut better and more exciting and more fun <laughs> to have like that sort of mulletishness um, and just not comprehending why people would cut it off. Like my dad who didn't have a mullet when he was a lawyer. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I had a, I had a, uh, a ducktail or rat 
tail when I was young. Oh, I mean, yeah? you, all, you all knew me in college when I was 13. I started, I, I didn't get a haircut for 10 years. And I, uh, I, you know, grew my hair quite long uh, down to my butt. But I, um, I, uh, I, you had a flaxen mane. I did, I did. I had a golden Leonin flaxen you, mane. You were a golden god, sir. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, those days are behind me, certainly. Um, but uh, when, I was, when I was a kid, I flirted with, I flirted with the idea of, of long hair um, by, having a, by having a rat tail that, was, that you know, went a quarter of the way down, down my back. And that, to me, was the awesomest, uh, the awesomest form of not cutting just a small portion of the very back of your hair. You know what I mean? You could cut 80% of your hair, but the little, uh, the little lock in the middle had to, uh, had to continue down, right? Yeah, yeah. You and the samurai, man. You and the samurai. <laughs> so you, you, could, you couldn't commit to a cue, you know? Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, and then I had to cut it off if someone uh, defeated me in battle. You know what I mean? Like the, like the Dothraki in the. Uh... Oh, and, and just to be just to be clear, yeah, the cue right. and the and the top knot are different. I don't I don't mean to conflate Chinese and Japanese haircuts. I'm sorry for that if I did so, but uh, but there you yeah. go. So guys, um, Whitney Houston died. It's a real shame, you know. What Whitney Houston died? I, oh my god! Honestly, I don't think there's a lot to overthink here. I mean, I think we've covered some of the ground. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it just, it struck me that, uh, it struck me that we actually, there's a parallel that we totally didn't intend on making um, that has to do with the narrativization of sports and the kind of narrativization of celebrity downfalls or just sort of celebrity culture generally now that we are kind of, I mean, you know, now that we live in this like Baroque age of celebrity celebrity mania with sort of postmodern death of the author type uh interactions with uh images and uh signifiers and simulacra of of celebrities we get you know we get um little pieces right it's it's kind of like um it's kind of, the the difference between uh, a random number generator and a narrative is that one is one is uh, digital and one is analog, which is to say one is discrete and one is conti- continuous, right? Um, uh, a story kind of you imagine it on a being kind of an unbroken line from you know from inception to climax, whereas uh, you know. A baseball game is actually a, a series of discrete events. You know what I mean? Base hit, mm-hmm. base hit, home run, things like this. Um, we get discrete views into sort of celebrity lives. We get like nuggets of information. We get uh, pieces of information, and from that, you know, there's a kind of narrativization. Sorry. Yeah. Tweets, as it often is. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, yeah. these days, yeah. And from that, there's kind of a narrativization of that. Uh, you know, that happens, and the you know the narratives. Uh, always kind of differ depending on on who tells them they're always sort of self-serving uh that you know what i mean they always serve the like personal or political interest of the you know of the the person constructing the narrative and um so that what you know what what we talk about when we talk about celebrities is not nearly as uh what um it's not like it's it's not like it's more uh it's not like we're standing on firmer ground you know what i mean than what we talk about when we're talking about sports I think yeah yeah yeah. Uh, the the thing that strikes me about the the current coverage of celebrities, as opposed to the way that they were covered, um, sort of at you know the dawn of the golden age of Hollywood and whatnot, um, it, it really kind of plays into uh, the sort of classic Promethean story that uh, we we tend to think of of celebrities occupying the sort of like Elvis Presley story, whereas once upon a time celebrities would, you know, sometimes even the studios would, would make up a, a whole persona for them, um, you know, concomitant with changing their name from something, you know, very quotidian into something very regal. You know, the idea that these these people were golden gods, they were icons that walked around and, and through their movies or their music um, were showing you a sort of more angelic class than, than your lowly, dirty life. Um, and then you have the sort of emergence of, of people like Elvis Presley, Marilyn Monroe, who were very famously born, and, and it was well understood amongst you know, anyone who was a fan of either of theirs, that they're, they're born to a lower class, they're born into, into um, you know, obscurity. And, and then they rise to their fame. 
uh, and and as such, you know, occupy the sort of intermediary character in between, you know, the human class, the average class, the non-celebrity, and the angelic class, the true celebrity, um, and and are the sort of like Promethean characters as a result, right? And, and I see that you know that that kind of mindset has really proliferated in the way that we look at celebrities now in general. You know, the the common thing, the common parlance is, oh, celebrities, they're just like us. Right, it's it's basically the the running mo for you know Us Magazine. I never know if it's Us Magazine or US Magazine. Do they cover international celebrities in that? Um, but you know, it's, either it's, way, it's it's disturbing. Yeah, exactly. I, either way, it is garbage that I would never read all the time at the supermarket. No, the um, idea that celebrity culture could be described to us, you know, the the, the royal yeah, us, yeah, or, right. or like US, the United States of America. Though that's what I refer to as disturbing. <laughs> we should just make a celebrity mag called America. Or or them? How about them? Them. <laughs> it's it's like it's like you know half a magazine about celebrities and half about giant ants. Um, it would be fun to take an issue of Us and just name it them and just call it to the same thing. Just everywhere where it mentions Us magazine in the in the magazine, just change it to them. Just change it to them. Yeah, yeah, and see if it makes the magazine feel different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that, that's my take on this. Like you know, once, once upon a time. The very concept of trying to associate a celebrity as being a person just like you are was almost blasphemy, you know, mm. and, and which is why a lot of their personal scandals were sort of covered up back in the day. Whereas, you know, we're, we're Rock Hudson um, alive and acting right now, where, where he just sort of rising to his fame, you know, issues of his sexuality and whether or not he felt comfortable being open about it, you know, would be discussed ad nauseum on the national stage constantly. He'd be Channing Tatum, basically. Basically, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't, but, I don't but, want to, I don't want to say anything about Channing sexuality. You heard but it. Pete Fenzel says Channing Tatum is gay. <laughs> That's not what I mean. <laughs> He'd be Channing Tatum, but able to act really well. Why is everyone dating on Channing Tatum? Channing <laughs> Tatum is fine. The only reason that people are mad about Channing Tatum, oh, not the only reason, but one reason people are mad I can't about- remember him. He, yeah, <laughs> he fades into a kind of average, a kind of gray on beige on you know. Here's the thing: it, like, for, this isn't true now, but like a couple of years ago, the, you would you you could you, it was hilarious because you know who knew Channing Tatum? You know who knew who Channing Tatum was? People who were attracted to men sexually knew who Channing Tatum was, and nobody else did. So if you went around, you could. I, I, I did this game with my coworkers once, where I like talked to the male and female coworkers, and I'm like, "Hey, I asked all the men, do you know who Channing Tatum is?" And they were like, "No." And I asked all the women, "Like, do you know who Channing Tatum is?" They're like, "Sure, of course." Um, now, of course, I myself am I'm not a homosexual. However, um, I know who Channing Tatum is by virtue of doing the research for all of you beautiful people. Um, but uh, but no, yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's like. Um, it's like it's as if like it's as if other people don't care about other people's sex symbols that much. Um, you know what I mean? Like it was he had no movies that men wanted to watch ever. Like he had he had Step Up, he had She's the Man, right? Which is like which is like <laughs> just already kind of flirting with danger there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had um what is it? Uh, well, Step Up to the Streets. He had that movie Stop Loss with Ryan Philippi. Um. Oh, in Coach Carter, but like, but like, he, he was totally a teeny bopper celebrity. Like, that's why we don't know who he is. And, and nowadays, he's like an older teeny bopper celebrity. He isn't really a teeny bopper anymore. And he's trying to make movies that everybody wants to watch. And we're all like, hold the phone. Like, you didn't ingratiate yourself to us back when you were coming up. Like, you didn't. Yeah. Hey, GI Joe, I guess. But maybe if GI Joe had been better, how, that how dare how dare you not rise to more prominence portraying Bob Davenport in that one episode of CSI Miami? Yeah. <laughs> But I don't know. It was sort of like it was sort of like when Ashton Kutcher was first coming up. Like, do you remember what happened with him? Where it was like, like he was really popular among gay guys first, and then among like teenage girls, and then among women, and then everybody knew who he was. Like, it was like a process. Like, he was a wait, very. Sorry, fringe- wait, what did you say about Harvey Firestein? <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Just saying that there are greater forces on Earth that are dreamed of by your philosophy, Horatio. <laughs> and one of them is women actually being attracted to men. But uh, anyway. Has, hasn't, hasn't been my experience. Yeah, that's yeah exactly. Like, I know none of us have ever experienced this phenomenon, but I've read about it. <laughs> there are actually women who feel like an inherent urge to be near certain men that they have that have certain qualities that I've never uh, encountered. Sorry, <laughs> just, just for the people listening to this, we've stopped discussing things ourselves. We're just reading the color commentary from the Magic the Gathering. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Look, all right. That the fact that he had triple galvanic class at the end of the semis, that was just runner, runner, runner. But he still should have blocked with his tokens. Anyway, <laughs> I don't know what you said just now, man, but it was beautiful. It touched um, me. Like right five. Here. So I, I could about. not use my old, if I dug out my old Magic the Gathering cards from like, you know, some kind of box deep in a closet in my mom's house, uh, I, I could not use those in tournament play. No, you could use them in certain tournament plays. There's certain tournament formats called Eternal Tournament Formats, where you can use older cards. Okay. Um, so you could go to a Legacy Tournament, or you could go to a Vintage Tournament. Uh, the problem with that is that the larger the card pool is, like the more broken and ridiculous cards are present in it. So the cards that you have would probably not. Although some of them very well might be. You might have cards in there worth hundreds of dollars, and you wouldn't know. In fact, it's likely that you have at least something that is worth some money to somebody. Yeah, and I, I, I definitely wouldn't know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So are they, there you are go. Are these ever published? I guess they can't be published because digital reproduction is so good that uh, you, could, you could make your own set of Magic the Gathering cards, right? What, what anti-counterfeiting measures does Magic the Gathering uh, employ? <laughs> oh, well, that's, they actually introduced a new anti-counterfeiting policy like this year, um, which is interesting uh, because they had previously – Is that we shouldn't counterfeit? <laughs> no, no, no. It was, um, it was okay. So, Magic Gathering has something called proxy play uh, for the, the for, so okay. So, the biggest protection that Magic Gathering has against counterfeiting is the huge gap in the value of the cards. And this is something that could be relevant to other things as well. Is that some cards are worth like thousands of dollars, right? They're, they're the really old ones. So, if you're going to counterfeit a, a Magic the Gathering card and sell it, you're probably going to counterfeit like the really expensive one. Ones and not like the really cheap ones, right? It's like much more cost effective for you. However, the supply of the really old cards that are really expensive is really, really small relative to the supply of the larger body of cards. So it's actually easier to determine when something is being counterfeited, right? Because if, if people, people talk about establishing a database of like all the existing like old Power Nine, as they're called, cards, like the Black Lotuses and all that other nonsense. Um, so, so that's one of the big protections is it's, it's almost like that uh, philosophy that Bush said of like, well, the reason we invade Iraq is so that the terrorists kill Iraqis and not Americans, right? Like, like um, it, it, which is, of course, not necessarily a great strategy in real life, nor particularly sympathetic to the human condition. But <laughs> with regard to um, that, that people are less likely to counterfeit magic cards that are currently seeing a lot of play because there's not as much money in, as in counterfeiting the really old ones. Um, so that being said, uh, in tournaments where you are playing where the older cards are an important part of the format. Sometimes they have proxy play where you're allowed to like write on a piece of paper that this is a Black Lotus, right? And I get 10 of those in my deck because it's kind of unreasonable. If you made everybody have one who played, you wouldn't have enough players to have the tournament. So Vintage in particular, which is like a very, very open uh, eternal format where you can play almost anything, um, you could have like, okay, you can have 10 proxies. But they recently set a rule out that no, you can't make proxies because people were selling proxies on eBay that looked like the cards. They were calling them proxies. They were very clearly counterfeits, right? Uh, but because they were calling them proxies, they were claiming that they couldn't be prosecuted for it because proxies were illegal in tournament play. So you were basically photocopying a Black Lotus, calling it a proxy, and selling it for more money than a proxy is generally worth. So they set up a rule that only judges can make proxies. Uh, and, uh, and so... But that's an interesting like distinction, right? And then I guess in the other stuff, the main check is just the the play. Like it's also just a social consensus. Like I, you and I could right now just like cut out to get a bunch of labels from Staples and like a, a bunch of index cards and just like mock up a bunch of Magic the Gathering decks. Like like just writing on them with marker. Like we could do that, and yet people don't, right? And and, and I think that this is an interesting lesson here. It's it's is that look, on a large scale, people who play Magic tend to buy the packs and play the cards, right? And like. Part of it is that the color is something they buy for. They don't, they don't buy Magic just for the gaming experience, right? You buy for the art. You buy for the product design. You buy for, the, for opening the pack and finding out what's inside of it. Like, the gamble of that is a little bit of a thrill. So there's all sorts of little value propositions along the, the path for the consumer that discourage them from simply taking a Sharpie to an index card, which would be very easy to do if all you wanted to do is play a Wolf Run mirror, right? Which none of you know what it is, so never mind. But that's what the final part <laughs> That answer your question. So, so one thing is the distribution of, of the payoffs for it means that it gets contained to an area of the economy that's fairly easy to monitor and not very troublesome for most people because they don't have those kinds of cards. Part of it is the value proposition. A lot of it is the price. You know, like you don't magic is not that expensive. I mean, playing it on a tournament level is hugely expensive. But just buying a pack of cards is. I mean, that's not that expensive. And you know, counterfeiting that doesn't cost you like four bucks. 
bucks for 15 cards. You know, like there's not as much money in that. Now, if you want to go around counterfeiting Jace the Mind Sculptor, right, which is like 50 bucks and used to be 100 bucks, that was a card that was heavily played and banned in a whole bunch of formats. Like, I don't know if there was a lot of counterfeiting of that, but there very well might have been. Um, and it just under the rug or something. But, the, but everybody does know the different tests, like the Ben tests, like Steam tests, like way of, of figuring out whether your cards are fake without damaging them too much. Right. So anyway. Wow. Good to know. <laughs> Sorry, I talked about that. You asked this question. I don't think you wanted to know the answer. No, I, I did. I, I did want to know the answer to the question because it gets it gets at the heart of what what Magic: The Gathering is, and and I think kind of why it endures. You know, twenty years after uh, it was introduced, right? I, mean, I think you, these lessons also apply to media counterfeiting, right? It's that like like the media that you don't want to counterfeit. There has to be something about the value proposition of buying it that makes you want to go through the purchasing of it. Right, like I mean, that's right, what magic. That was the thing with the yeah. Well, you, oh, were you about to say the Louis C.K. C.K. thing? That is to say, the the purchasing of it, actually spending your money and giving it to Louis C.K. was part of the value that Louis yeah. C.K. was providing to you by, yep. by giving you thing because it, it gave you the chance to feel virtuous. Well, it gave you the chance not just to feel virtuous, but also to feel like you were sticking it to the big media companies. You know what I mean by participating in this ultra uh, alternative distribution channel. Um, yep. So you were part of a resolution and you were doing something good and it, you know, you got to feel like you were in a little relationship with Louis CK there for a minute. Yeah. So, so Matt, I'm actually kind of uh, out of the loop on this. What was going on with Louis CK? Oh, was so he, uh... Louis CK uh, released, he filmed a special uh, in New York, at his own expense, and he uh, encoded it as high-definition video himself and sold it directly to his audience uh, through his website. Through, uh, cool. You know, and, uh, and sort of like, it, the, like the, the Radiohead model for, uh, yeah, for district. Yeah, right, exactly, but it, it had never been done quite on this scale with video because he made you know, north of a million dollars in an absurdly short amount of time. Um, nice. And ended up like giving away half of it or a quarter of it or something like that. You know what I mean? Something like that. Yeah. Uh, and he didn't put DRM on the copies either. Like it was, he, you very well could have downloaded it easily and most likely still can, right? Like, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah. And there, there were mm-hmm. people, I mean, there were people who, who were doing that, but. Um, but- I, I actually think like a lot of people who had uh, who had who they paid for it and then had difficulty with their downloads and then they so they they went to uh, their favorite BitTorrent aggregator and and uh, found a torrent of it like that I I heard that story a couple times in in asking around about it but they had paid already and then just distributed it and actually and then just did use BitTorrent as the distribution platform which actually is better for Louis C.K. because then he's not paying for the bandwidth to send <laughs> <laughs> this high definition video you know which so man, are, are you are you saying that people should copy and repost overthinking it articles on their uh, on their server of choice people do copy and repost overthinking it articles on their server of choice that they, they use our rss feed uh and scrape it and there uh, are there are uh, you know shovel blogs or splogs yeah. or you know like the new york times does too yeah sometimes the new york yeah. times does sure <laughs> um, you know what? I, I think they've been erasing all of mine too that's why it looks like i don't write anything uh, they just take the, hundred, the, the hundreds of articles I write every week and just they, they, they delete them as they copy them off our blog. Yeah. And they, they repost them as this thing called the Huffing Town Post, I think. <laughs> I don't know. It sounds like a children's like show. If it, was, anyway. if it was possible, we've skated, I think, more off the rails. So maybe we'll leave it there. Uh, if you want to join the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but Channing Tatum was just about to start playing Magic the Gathering, guys. <laughs> you guys, Channing Tatum was about to perform on the Grammys. <laughs> Tatum the Channing. What? But that, that happened, by the way. Channing Tatum performed at the Grammys? No, the Grammys happened. Oh, but Channing Tatum didn't oh. perform at them. Not to my knowledge. Then I'm not interested. <laughs> <laughs> the Foo Fighters and Adele won, because they're the only groups that exist, right? Like, according to... That's, that's what you I guys, heard. Guys, the Foo Fighters are, like, ghettoed uh, to playing in a tent outside of the Staples Center. I'm not making this up. <laughs> too noisy you and you kids and your crazy music you're too noisy oh and, uh, oh, yeah. oh foos why must ye fight <laughs> and and dang chris brown that son of a jerk i hate that guy hey hey chris brown's dad's a pretty cool guy i don't know chris brown's dad actually so <laughs> it's possible his mom was a jerk i don't know <laughs> and but uh, what were you saying about us devolving off the rails there <laughs> <laughs> if you want to join the conversation, you can email us at podcastsoverthinkingit.com or call or text 203-285-6401. Um, and uh, if you want to join the conversation, you can uh, do it on the Overthinking. How, how are, I'm no good at forums, Pete. How are the Overthinking It forums coming? They're 
okay. I mean, we usually have one or two threats. <laughs> wow, way to talk up our website, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> what, you want me to lie? Arby's commercial. <laughs> like, no, what, what, what can we do right now? I mean, what, what small behavior can we change to, to uh, help the forums be even better? Well, first of all, I think that it's important to note that uh, the, re- the, the mini tweaks to the redesign that you've made, Matt, are making a big improvement. Like, there have been some technical issues with the forums and, and with the site in general, and I'm liking the revisions that you made with your new setup. So that is cool, and I like that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And so check them out. If you check them out once and you're like, oh, it doesn't work on my phone or it doesn't quite work the way that I want it to, check it out again because you should have better login access. You should Your login should stick around better, right? Like it should be a little bit of an interface. Like that's pretty exciting. The movies thread, the movies threads are the most active ones, I think. We had a really cool discussion of uh, the Hunger Games movie that I really enjoyed. Um, and now people are talking a lot about Star Wars and, uh, and they're talking about some other movies too. So come in and we can talk about all that stuff. Excellent. Uh, I hope you will. Uh, and I hope you will also uh, join the, the conversation in the comment threads. I mean, do we even need comment threads now that we have forums? I don't know. Yes, so, I think we Yeah. Oh, well, good. There we, there we go. We have them. Um, it's uh, <laughs> the comments. QED. This article on our, uh, on our little website, www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably does I believe the children are the future. Because the greatest side to bow is overthinking it. <laughs> <laughs> com, dot com. Dot com. Uh, you you need a powder, uh, powder blue tuxedo. Uh, you know, like a, like a Korg synth, you know, at like a like an airport bar in Trenton, and that would be like just a perfect moment. I'm there. 